Attention, this is Commander Gabe Freemuth of Dorkfest, the podcast. I have an urgent communique for General Josh. This is General Josh of the first Dorkfests. Dorkfest, the podcast, is no more. You dorks are boring rebel scum. Tell your precious listeners there will be no terms. There will be no surrender. Hi, I'm holding for General Josh. This is Josh. You and your dorks are doomed. We will wipe your opinions from the internet. Okay, I'll hold. Hello? Hello? Yep, I'm still here. Can you hear me? Josh, with a J. Good golfer, uh, Dorkfest King. I can hear you. Can you hear me? Look, I can't hold up this podcast forever. If you reach him, tell him Jordan has an urgent message for him. I believe he's tooling with you, Josh. About her mother. Oh, is she well? Yeah, she's doing good. She's just I. She's probably listening. And thank you to all who've tuned in to listen to our latest episode of Dorkfest, the podcast. Uh, as you can plainly hear, we've got an especially dorky episode ready for you today. We think this episode will make 0.5 past light speed, no problem. Uh, and in that spirit, let's move right along and introduce our dorky lineup. You've heard from me, Gabe Freemuth, so allow me to reintroduce the general who is impossible to keep on a short leash, Josh. Uh, and Josh, I know that you don't need to win. You just need Dan to lose. Well, Gabe, you know, I, I was all set with some some quippy dialogue about how I had this podcast tied on a string and, um, oh, I see you have Dan on this podcast. That's a bad idea. I think so. Jordan agrees. Um, but fr frankly, I'm, I'm dreading the, the choice that I'm this, that the thesis of this podcast is going to force me to make in about, you know, 90 minutes time. Um, I've made my decision. I know which way I'm going to go. I feel terrible about it. I'm going to suffer through. I suspect you're not the only one who's going to be hurting a bit. Uh, I sympathize with your, with your agonizing. I've, I've felt a little similarly. But, um, you know, speaking of, one of our Bothan spies has returned alive, beating the odds. And here he is bearing Imperial plans for what we can only assume is a fourth Death Star. How'd you get away, Dan? Oh, it was real easy. Uh, Mando and Baby Yoda picked me up in the, in the uh, Razor Crest. This is a Mandalorian episode, right? Sure. Nobody tell Dan any different and uh -oh. let him talk himself out of points. Oh, I have classically, in Dan fashion, prepared inaccurately and incorrectly. Definitely good to have those two zipping around the cosmos in a ship that just will not stay repaired, it seems. Um, it's uh, what a piece of junk. Um, and finally, a learned scholar and one of the foremost guardians of the wills, Jordan, is here to help us all learn the ways of the Force. We look very much forward to your teaching, Stuart. That's probably not a good idea, though I, I, will, I will quote something that I think Josh told us once about the strongest dorks having hearts of Kyber, so he'll probably be uh, breaking those out at some point during today's podcast. <laughs> Wisdom indeed. Wisdom indeed. Um, as we said, we're all really looking forward to our show today, despite our, uh, yeah, maybe a bit of uh, a bit of white knuckling on our part for um, in anticipation of this impossible choice before us. Uh, but it is a topic we've had in the back pocket since the early days of Dorkfest, the podcast, before the dark times, before the empire. Before we proceed, just a moment to ask our listeners to rate, review, and subscribe to Dorkfest, the podcast, wherever you're tuning into our frequency. Uh, you can find us on Instagram. We're on Google, Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, all the good stuff. 
And uh, in the meantime, please know we are trying to improve your experience with us by looking into that fuzzy blue hologram technology to give you the richest possible Dorkfest experience. Now, let's make some calculations before we jump to hyperspace so we don't crash into a moon or through a super star destroyer. Our warm-up question for today, gentlemen, who is it in this vast universe has the coolest lightsaber in Star Wars, this, this legendary weapon, the weapon of a Jedi, uh, not so clumsy and random as a blaster, something of, uh, it's a great prop, it's a great piece of design, it, it's unique to every Jedi, and um, you just can't get enough cool lightsabers. So Dan, let's start with you. What's, uh, in your view, what's the coolest lightsaber? I appreciate this warm-up question, Gabe, because it is, in my opinion, without question, the easiest warm-up question we've ever had in the long and storied history of Dorkfest, the podcast. The coolest lightsaber in the Star Wars galaxy belongs to Darth Maul. It's the double-bladed saber. It's the one that you get the money shot in Phantom Menace, where the doors open and the blade comes out one side and then it comes out the other side. And of course, it's perfectly wielded by Darth Maul in that 2v1 battle with Qui-Gon Jinn and Obi-Wan Kenobi. Really just about the only redeeming aspect of the Phantom Menace film. So to me, without question, Darth Maul. Uh, thank you so much, Dan. And um, you had mentioned going into this that you thought this was the easiest question uh, we'd had for a warm-up. And, and you know, had I thought about it a little longer, I might have come up with the same answer. But it, <laughs> uh, cool as it is, it didn't actually occur to me. I had my my thoughts set elsewhere, but it's a it's a, a great answer. And if we gave out points to this, you'd probably win them. But let's, uh, for a different take, argument's sake, let's go to Jordan, who I'm certain also has a, a favorite lightsaber of the Star Wars universe. Maybe the same one. Um, I, I do uh, have a, an answer, though um, I will say it is it is not a different take. Um, and, and you know, I don't like to say these words often, but Dan is right. Um, and as yes, you said, yes. <laughs> and as you said, Gabe, it's fortunate that we don't dole out any points for this warm up question. Otherwise, I know that I would just automatically be you know giving mine right over to him. But but Dan's right. It, the, the the coolest one is without a doubt. It's it's Darth Maul. Um, and, you know, Dan, in addition to all the things that you said about it, I think, you know, this is the first instance of, you know, what I would dub kind of the non-traditional lightsabers that we've seen. And none of them have done it better. None of them have even done anything close to as cool as Darth Maul's double-sided lightsaber. You have Count Dooku's, which I've always thought is kind of silly looking. Um, and then... You know, Kylo Ren's is kind of cool, but perhaps too much of a play on, I, I believe Excalibur would be the sword that it's kind of playing on there. So, it, it, you know, it's, it, again, in, in the pantheon of the non-traditional lightsabers, there's really only one that belongs there, and it's Darth Maul's. An excellent answer. And um, see, it's interesting you say that about uh, another Sith lightsaber, uh, Dooku's there. I always thought the design was great. It's just that the character was a goof. It's, I mean, it's in the name. Dooku. It's, it's, you got, you're lucky you have Christopher Lee playing that role, because as we discussed in our prequels podcast, there's nothing else pleasant about that character. Um, but a good, uh, good points made. And uh, for myself, uh, for my non-point nomination here, I will, uh, I'm going to go the other way. I'm going to turn away from the Sith and I'm turning toward the light. Um, my favorite, uh, and I think the coolest lightsaber in Star Wars, uh, maybe a little pedestrian, but I think it's Luke's Return of the Jedi lightsaber. Um, it's basically got a whole little scene and plot point devoted entirely to its unveiling. I had the toy when I was a kid. Uh, it was my first lightsaber. And it's green. That's the first thing. I'm never going to forget that moment when 
R2 rockets that thing out of the air and Luke flips, you know, off the, off the skiff and catches it in midair, lights it up. And boy, is that thing green as Ireland. The decision was made to do that. Uh, it was originally going to be blue, but of course they're shooting in the desert. Uh, and if you're shooting at an up angle of Luke Skywalker, you're not going to see really the blue lightsaber. It's not going to look the same way against the blue sky. So they made it green um, and gave us some phenomenal uh, Star Wars photography later in the movie on because of that. So that's mine. Oh, I also thought it was cool that Luke built his lightsaber to more closely mimic Obi-Wan's than, uh, than uh, the Anakin Skywalker lightsaber. I always thought that was a nice design touch. But before I go over long, probably already too late, let's round this out and Josh will tell us all what the correct answer to this question is. The correct answer is Kylo Ren's. The cross-hilt blade is terrifically cool. And the, the way the saber fire just like is wild and scorching off all the ends of it, I think is a, a really cool choice that um that they made with the with the sequel trilogy um matching kylo ren's attitude and if i may uh take a few shots at uh, dan and jordan's pick you only see the double-sided lightsaber in action for what like 30 seconds before it gets chopped in half in the first duel against little mini duel against qui-gon jinn he doesn't even fire up both sides uh, you know Dan talks a lot about missed potential. Um, uh, I, th that's where I place Darth Maul's lightsaber. Missed potential. Oh, see, I, I think you're way wrong. What they did was they build suspense. You wonder in that first duel, why the heck is the handle so darn large compared to other lightsabers? And we then know you get that in the trailer. shot reveal when the doors open and both blades fire out. Come on, man. It is kind of uh, they're they're given they always give the coolest stuff to market, um, but it is kind of like uh, you know putting Arnold as the good guy in the T two uh, in the Terminator two trailers. You know it kind of you know I, I have to give that one to Josh. You know it's coming. It wasn't all the trailers. They marketed the heck out of that. Although to Dan's point, I do think that lightsaber survives like half the fight. Yeah, it definitely survives way more than the thirty seconds. Josh is. I, I think it's Qui-Gon that chops it in half, right? It's Correct. Yeah, yeah, which is, and the lightsaber getting chopped in half, a nice little foreshadowing of Darth <laughs> Maul getting chopped in half. Okay, no, you're done. We're done here. Move along. Move along. How is it that you became the Dorkfest punching bag? And then, and then you go and, I mean, I can't say, I'm going to make a, a point, you know, equally dubious later on. It's several I plan to. So I'll, I'm going to stop and eat my words now and move us along before we go uh, much farther. today. Listeners, uh, when we're not unfairly picking on Dan, we're going to be debating the merits of the two best recent Star Wars films. Uh, it's amazing that once upon a time movies came out in theaters, but they used to. Uh, and these were two of them that we saw and enjoyed greatly for very different reasons. Uh, we're debating Rogue One versus The Last Jedi. Rogue One is, of course, uh, the first of the Star Wars stories that Disney started putting out. Um, it is a standalone story. It tells, uh, it's effectively a heist movie, um, just with a real nice emotional core to it, telling the story of the brave band of rebels that stole the plans of the Death Star to make the entire movie of A New Hope even possible. It's the story beneath the story. And of course, The Last Jedi was Ryan Johnson's, I think, unfairly maligned uh, 2017 Star Wars uh, effort, the sequel to J.J. Abrams' The Force Awakens. It's the eighth and uh, it's divisive, and it's bold, and it takes a lot of risks, and I think most of them pay off. But uh, it's a very different kind of Star Wars movie. The stakes are different when you're trying to forward the Skywalker saga and wrap a bow on all that. And Rogue One is, of course, it gets to be its own thing. 
but it's also standing on some pretty big shoulders. So let's go right into it. And you know what? Let's start with Dan here. Uh, Dan, for our one-point question to start us off, talk about what do you love about Rogue One, a Star Wars story? What works for you? What doesn't work for you? Who talks first? You talk, I talk. You want to talk? You talk. I'm hesitant to even open my mouth for all the vitriol that's going to ensue when I, you know, inject a single opinion, but I'm going to play along nonetheless. And I'm going to start with what works in Rogue One. And what I think works in Rogue One is the very end of the movie, where we finally get to see Darth Vader in his heyday kick some you-know-what. Now, I do take slight umbrage with this because I think this movie, I think this movie's very good. I think it moves from very good to very great if we get rid of the earlier Darth Vader scene. That's something that other people may contest with, but I don't like that scene. I like to think of this movie, how incredible would this movie be? If the only time you saw Darth Vader in the entire movie is when the doors open and we as an audience know what's coming and there's the silhouette and we watch him kick ass for 45 seconds, which basically is all that scene is, rebels in pure terror, and then that's it. That's all we get. As is, it's still very good, though, because Darth Vader is kicking some serious you-know-what. I mean, we get to see him use his lightsaber abilities, his force abilities. He brings a, a crew of you know stormtroopers along with him. They're completely irrelevant. And I thought, I mean, they got a whole big band of these rebel pilots here. And I think that the, the fear that they convey is genuine and palpable. And, I mean, you know when that door jams, you're like, no, 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 you got to pass it through. You got you to pass this through, man, or because you're, you're not going to make it out of here. And I think they did a, a, just a phenomenal job of building the suspense to that moment. It's the kind of thing where as an audience going in, you're like, all right, I think we're going to see Darth Vader, right? Like we know he's a key player in this movie. I think it, it kind of gets soured by that sort of, I think, silly scene where Krennic goes to visit him and, you know, don't choke on your aspirations. I just, I just don't know that that scene accomplishes a whole heck of a lot except to introduce Darth Vader because we were an hour into the movie and it feels like we should hear and see Darth Vader. Uh, but that ending scene, man, I think is, it's right up there. If we were to list our top 10 favorite scenes in Star Wars history, I would wager a large sum of money that that closing scene with Darth Vader at the end of Rogue One is on all of our lists. It's that good. Well, Dan is clearly incredibly wrong. Again, no, I'm, that scene of Darth Vader slashing through all those poor rebels uh, at the end of Rogue One is tremendous. And, and it, it, it was eye-opening for me as a viewer, as someone who has really known about Darth Vader and how evil he is and how powerful he is for nearly my entire life. And yet I had never seen it in action. And it was so cool to see it with my own two eyes, even though we knew how powerful Darth Vader is. And you, know, you get in the prequels, Anakin, at, you know, once he's made the transition to Darth Vader, he does uh, clear off a bunch of people on Mustafar, but he's not in the, the armor. He's not in the helmet. He's not in the, that, that iconic look that we talked about so much on our Villains podcast that, that, that we all grew to love and fear so much. 
and to, to finally see that and they treated it so well the scene is is just the right length it's lit beautifully um the the red lightsaber glow is terrifying um dan you're right that the scared ass rebels they do a really good job of looking of, of conveying that terror it's such an incredible scene that is where rogue one for me goes from good to amazing that's where it goes to transcendent i have more sympathy for the mustafar scene than dan does but i i cannot argue with you one iota on on the ending is it possible that the Mustafar scene exists solely to get the voice of James Earl Jones into this movie because you don't hear Darth Vader on the rebel transport? So this, that, like, is it possible that scene only exists to accomplish that? 100%. Yeah. I think that's exactly why that exists. And that's interesting too, because for, for my mind, I guess similar to Josh, I do have a bit more sympathy or maybe a bit more of a soft spot for the soft spot for the Mustafar scene, despite the fact that it clearly seems that Vader's castle is renting space in Mordor. You know, one of the things that I actually really like about the camera work in the Mustafar scene is the way that they make Krennic feel so small in relation to Vader. Um, and, and, and going back to the James Earl Jones point, you know, for as great as a voice actor and as great as an actor as he is, my least favorite part of that whole scene, as Dan referenced earlier, is that choking on your aspiration line. Like, it, I think that that scene could have been you know, a, a nice setup for the later scene if we don't hear Vader speak. If he's just listening to 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 Krennic, you know, kind of try to explain himself throughout the entire thing. And and even if you get that choke scene at the end, but he doesn't say anything, that, that pithy remark at the end, I feel like sours that scene for sure. Um, but no, I, I mean, I guess this is the podcast where Dan is finally right about things because he's again, absolutely right about this. It's, it's an absolutely phenomenal scene. We've already talked about the fear that, that that's in the Rebels. I'll, I'll give a quick shout out to, the last actor whose name I definitely don't know, and he may not even be credit, credited, but the last rebel that you see who just yells launch. Um, and I love that scene because it's, it's, it's almost, he's almost says it with like a, like a post-traumatic tone to it. Like he's so petrified as to what he just saw that like they, they just have to launch out of there. So um, I think that's a really, really, you know, great scene as, as we've already talked about. And I think it, it relates to another great aspect of this movie in the sense that there were a couple of things that this movie did that we weren't sure that they would do. As we just mentioned, we weren't sure that we were going to see that dark, evil, terrifying Vader. We weren't sure that we were going to see that. We saw it and it was awesome. The other thing that we weren't sure that we were going to see was whether or not they were going to do with this great band of rebels what they needed to do, which was have all of them die, right? So I know Dan, this was a, a question that you brought up or a point that you brought up before we had seen, before we were seeing the movie that like, you know, it, it, these characters all have to die, right? We've never heard about them. If they did this amazing thing, they would have to be part of the Rebel Alliance. They'd have to be part of that core of Rebels that we saw in A New Hope. And because we haven't heard of them, they have to all die, right? But this is Disney. Is Disney really going to take that step? And they did. And not only that, they give us these very, very 
personal farewells to each of the characters, to each of the set of the characters. And the, the way that they build up this team, to me, is really, really remarkable. I, I look at this film as like just having a degree of difficulty that is through the roof. And one of the key aspects of that is, again, getting us to invest in this large group of characters who we know have to do this amazing thing, and we know have to die by the end of it, and they do it. Um, in, in two hours and 15 minutes. So, you know, again, I think just another thing that we weren't sure that they were going to go that far, and they did. I, Dan may have started the train of being correct, but I think everybody's um, on point right here. I, I mean, just to track back uh, backwards a little bit. Um, yeah, I, I think um, with what on paper is kind of a thin script for some of the characters, I think each and every actor gives tremendous life to these roles and what great Star Wars names we have here. Cassian Andor, Chirrut Imwe, um, Bodhi Rook, you know, I mean, these are just, these are, these are instant classics without much on, you know, the, on the page, you know, we find some of these guys at a market on Jeddah, you know, we're the only characters we really stick with meaningfully is, is Jin and occasionally Cassian, but everybody, I mean, everybody is very lived in. Um, I, my, my personal favorite, I think uh, I indicated this in the notes, but I think uh, the actor Riz Ahmed is really, really tremendous as Bodhi Rook, who also has a pretty notable, I think, arc from Imperial pilot who doesn't like what's going on to defector to full-blown rebel, you know, giving orders and managing stuff by the end. And he just infuses the character with such a, with such sort of a nervous energy. And he's just, he, he is so out of his depth the whole time. And he's trying to give, you know, he's trying to do the right thing. Um, I, I think that's just a phenomenal, I'm happy to actually, before we continue, if anybody wants to uh, spout off about their favorite little, because that's the thing. Um, again, to Jordy's point, uh, every actor in this has something that really gives their character something. You know, it's one of those intangible art things. Yeah, it's it's K two S O for me and Alan Tudyk yeah, doing doing the voice acting for K two S O. I mean, who would have thought that? Um, it's half the best lines in the movie. Yeah, and and who would have thought that the death of a reprogrammed Imperial probe droid would actually be able to resonate some genuine emotion, both for that character, the characters in the movie, and for you as a member of the viewing audience, but that's exactly what's accomplished. And he's the first to go, I think. Um, I think Bodhi follows thereafter on the pad, and then Sheraton Bays, and then of course, you know, um, Jin and Cassian. Spoiler alert, guys. But It's, uh, it's funny you say that, Gabe, because in watching this movie back, I thought, boy, that would make for a great Dorkfest question. What's the order in which the characters in Rogue One are all killed? Because I actually think, I don't think that the order you said is right. Because, um, because Baze and Chirrut don't go back to back. No, they don't. Bodhi goes because, in between, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah it goes, um, I, I lumped Baze and Chirrut together, but no, you're right. Um, I always thought Bodhi was the first one to go, but K2SO is the first to buy it. And then it's, or I guess then it's Chirrut, no, and then it's Bodhi. Chirrut comes then it's, next, because... Yeah. He throws the master switch, then, yeah, and then well, he, he gets it. It's a, like, that goes to something that I think is so great about this last 45 minutes. I, I think we're all in agreement that like the last yeah, we, 45 we, minutes of this movie is just a transcendent Star Wars experience. It's the and best 45 minutes of Star Wars. Best consecutive 45 minutes of Star Wars. Now that that's right. a hot take. Jordy has thrown some quote-unquote hot takes out there previously. That is a hot take. No. I would have to time it out, but I, I'm not going to immediately disagree with Jordan. Ever since Return of the Jedi, 
Star Wars movies and, and probably a lot of other action movies too have tried to have these like three phase action sequences going on simultaneously and they never get as good as Return of the Jedi until now where you have the rebels on the ground Cassian, Jin, and K2 stealing the plans, and then the space battle. All three of these battles going on simultaneously, they evolve naturally. You know, one needs something from the other. They're able to communicate it somehow. Once the they've located the plans, then K2 has to tell them how to get there. Then they have to communicate something to Bodhi. Bodhi sends it to the other guys. There's all these little individual efforts that make this... Uh, end goal happen and it all just flows so naturally in, in my opinion I, I i think it's it, it's a brilliant brilliant action sequence and my absolute favorite part of it is the hammerhead corvette scene this is a scene that i am positive i played out with micro machine star wars toys as a kid of a smaller vessel ramming a star destroyer into a space station of some sort. Um, I saw that and just thought like, holy moly, this is, they just beamed this straight out of my childhood imagination. It was so cool to see it on the big screen. And I think that speaks to, I think the two, like in miniature, so to speak, I think speaks to the, the two biggest strengths of this movie. And I think it's pacing and I think it's the imagination to build on what A New Hope gave us. Yeah, I, I think Jordan's um, hot take is uh, is very pleasantly hot to the touch. I think it's like the beach on a on a hot day. I think that is maybe spot on. Best forty five minutes in all of Star Wars. I'll I'll buy that for a dollar. So contained within that, it is again sort of the movie in perfect microcosm. Yeah, the building from from struggle to struggle. Um, the things that get in the way um, are fantastic. The little victories along the way, and then yeah, the huge you know the heartbreaks as, as people tend to fall by the wayside and and to structure not only the excellent, you know, scene on Scarif to juxtapose that again with the space battle, which is something that you're right. Star Wars has struggled to sort of replicate since its previous high point of Return of the Jedi. Um, the imagination to bring, you know, we're going to use this ship this way and wouldn't it be cool if it's all the greatest bits of little, yeah, Star Wars dreamery that we could think of, you know, um, it's Bayes hoisting a rocket and blasting a, a, um, a rocket into a, uh, one of the Adat's guns and it pauses for a second and then turns threateningly right back around to incinerate them until it gets buckled in half by a, a U-wing, which itself is a, a tremendous little invention for this movie. The pacing of it is really the movie. I, you, you had a, a progression earlier, Josh, that this movie went from good, uh, you know, from went from great to transcendent. Uh, and I think this movie goes from good to great to transcendent at exactly that Darth Vader moment you, you speak of. And I, I think, yeah, the, the 45 minutes are uh, that, that whole third act, is as good as it gets, but I get chills, even in little side shots, you know, when Jin is first taken to Yavin 4, them walking her through the base, I mean, it's, it's no different than seeing that same, it's like they had the thing in mothballs all these years, and just pulled the set back out for, for Rogue One, I mean, the attention to detail is just fantastic, and, and I think that is something we can't discount Rogue One has going for it, is how much it celebrates what Star Wars has been. Yeah, but I'm really glad that you brought up pacing because I think the real strength of this movie is in that in in that it's such a it's such a cohesive and condensed narrative, but everything fits so perfectly into one another, and and nothing nothing that I can think of last 
a, a second too long. You know, we've talked about that battle at the end um, on Scarif and how great that is, but the battle on Edu earlier is also really, really excellent. Yeah, cool. um, you know, I, you know it, it's not better than the battle on Scarif. The battle on Scarif, as we've already talked about, is perhaps the best battle sequence in all of Star Wars. But, it, but it's another great sequence, and in part because it's building up it's building up a personal narrative between Jin and her father but then also between Cassian and Jin so you have all of these different character interactions that are all kind of coming to a head in that moment and in that sense it serves it serves a really really central purpose towards forwarding the narrative but it doesn't last overly long and you gave another word that you brought up that i think is really important is 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 that imagination but i think also in the sense that i think what this movie does really, really well is reimagining what we already knew. One of the best ways that it does that, and I think it's also critical in terms of this conversation regarding the end sequence or the battle sequence at the end of this movie, is you know, in the the scene that set that up, where where ultimately the rebellion decided not to go ahead with that mission. I noticed this sort of distinction between two different types of rebels. You had the fighters and you had the politicians. And ultimately, if it was up to the politician rebels, that wouldn't have even happened. And they had actually elected, no, it's too dangerous. We're not going to go ahead with this. And it's the fighters that say, you know what? We're doing it anyway because we have to. And that was something that I found really, really interesting because at least prior to that point, the rebellion was one cohesive collective unit and they were all kind of on the same side or they were all certainly on the same side, but they were all kind of pointing in the same direction. And you saw this kind of like reimagined culture of them. And you saw that they, they weren't necessarily at, I I think what it did is is it complicated the, the view that we had seen of the rebellion from prior movies um and and that was helpful in terms of sort of reimagining the story as a whole yeah jay you're right it's a really nuanced look at the structure of the not just the structure but the individuals inside the rebellion and i think it does that with the empire too krennic is a really interesting like arch baddie in this movie um he's not the number one guy in charge that we see that's Grand Moff Tarkin. He's not the most physically imposing that's Darth Vader. Um, But he's the antagonist. He's the one that, you know, commissioned the death star and, you know, is, is dragging uh, Galen or so out of retirement to finish the thing. Um, You know, he's, he's the one who with his death troopers kills uh, Jin's mom and sets her on this path that, that she joins up with Saw Gerrera. Um, but it, and yet we see him as this, as this petty guy who's concerned about like, Oh, th- th- does, does the emperor know my name? I, I, I kind of wish that Darth Vader would have been here to see this part. Getting credit um, for this group project here. Yeah. And Gabe, you mentioned how they made Krennic look small. I feel like they do that through the whole movie. Like, Tarkin is taller than he is. I feel like he looks like extra short in that opening s- scene where he's chatting with Galen or so. I-, I love that scene. The dialogue in that scene is just so natural between those two where he like sort of, you know, glances Lyra coming at him like, oh, she's alive. What a miracle. Like, I, I think he is a really, really interesting villain. Ben Mendelsohn gives a great performance there. 
Uh, I want to agree and also make sure that uh, credit goes where it's due to Jordan's point about um, Krennic being made smaller. Uh, I think the shot is, is uh, in relation to Darth Vader's advancing shadow um, on Mustafar. Um, but no, you're right. Uh, ben Mendelssohn is a very different, and this is a performance I think we've all discussed that has grown on us over the years. And it is composed of all these little, yeah, these little moments that Ben Mendelssohn and Joe, oh, yeah, oh yes, here's Lyra. <laughs> um, and, and the little moments of weird viciousness, you know, even later in that same scene, they have a child, find it. And, um, you know, we stand here amidst my achievement. I mean, he's, you know, halfway, he's ready to throw down in fisticuffs with, uh, with Tarkin, who is clearly above such nonsense. Uh, and all it takes is a name drop of the emperor. Oh, you, you'll, you'll tell the emperor about me. You'll let, you'll let it know. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's, over time, I think he's a really interesting um, counterpart to to um, our emotional core of of Jin Erso, who really does all she can to get away from anything resembling this. I, I mean, even kind of from afar in relation to Krennic, finds her way back. And you know, Gabe, and you bring up Jin Erso, I just kind of wanted to go back to the initial question that you asked, that sort of got us on this train of discussing this in terms of our favorite characters. And and for me, it might be a bit of it might be a bit of an easy answer, but I, I think my favorite character out of out of that 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 cast of rebels that you know are responsible for the rogue one mission uh, it would be felicity jones and jenner so and i think one thing that she does and that that character does sort of similar to Bodhi, is that it gives us this encapsulated experience of what many different rebels probably went through like i noticed you know you had sort of her transformation one of the lines that i love that she has towards the beginning of the movie um when they're talking about like not wanting to see the imperial flags flying over them um and she says it doesn't matter if you don't look up so it's like at first she kind of just wants to like kind of keep her head down and and she's living her own life and if she doesn't look up then it's not a problem but then she kind of jumps to like this really idealistic version of the rebellion and that's right around the time that she gets the message from her father but then she's kind of knocked down a little bit after that after her father obviously dies and then um cassian has this great line where it's like you're not the only one who lost everything not you're the only one who lost something but you're not the only one who lost everything and then finally, you have the, the, the great line towards the end of Rebellions about Built on Home. You know, if you had told me ahead of time that you would have this character that goes through all of those different transformations, I would say that's probably going to be really rushed character development and I'm not going to buy it. But you do. And, and I think that that's just a real strength of the character building in this movie, but also a strength of the movie in general. And certainly Jin is the beneficiary of the bulk of the movie's emotional work you know, as the characters in this go, she's definitely, she's probably by far the most fleshed out, but it is, um, again, I, I think you're right, Felicity Jones, I think, does a tremendous job just being in each of those moments. Um, Jen Erso is a very, you know, much as Yoda advises, she would have been a good Jedi. She's living very much moment to moment, and that that ends up sort of being borne out because she runs, you know, as she says later on, that they go from chance to chance until the chances are spent, and actually, this is a, a good point maybe to pivot to some of the other um, sort of merges some points here because there's plenty of ways including in characters um that rogue one likes to throw star wars fans a bone uh as far as you know references or something familiar um and there's two big ones uh that we haven't uh, discussed yet in terms of setting we've touched on them i guess but um this movie goes to some lengths in order to maintain continuity between a movie made in 1977 and or that came out in 1977 and one that came out in 2016 for those not in the know, we're talking specifically about the digital recreation of Peter Cushing's uh, Grand Moff Target, now played, uh, voiced and bodied 
and then digitally painted over, a la Planet of the Apes, by actor Guy Henry. And this is, uh, the use of this is, and again, using it for Carrie Fisher later in the movie, uh, for at least a single frame, this is something of uh, some debate. It's not a debate. It was just a bad decision. And the hot takes are flowing. The CGI Peter Cushing Grand Moff Tarkin to me gets worse and worse upon subsequent viewings. I remember seeing it the first time and thinking, wow, like, all right, obviously it's not the real guy, but that's pretty good. They, they made it. They made a good effort. The more and more I watch it, the more and more it stands out. It, it just doesn't work. You could sort of get away with it when it's a shot of just Grand Moff Tarkin. As long as he's not talking to a real person, it's like adequate and acceptable but it's not it's never good the problem is then you inject real people into the conversation and then it's noticeably awkward so what i go what i don't understand is they made a decision to cast another actress as mon mothma now this was a character that existed in return of the jedi we didn't have to digitally recreate her we just cast an actress and dressed her up and made her look like this character that we recognize I would have been totally fine with that if they had done that for Tarkin. We know Peter Cushing is no longer with us, and even, I'm pretty sure he's no longer with us, got to no longer be with us. But just find another actor, put some makeup on him, dress him up like Grand Moff Tarkin. I'm going to watch the movie and be like, oh yeah, Peter Cushing is no longer with us, or he didn't want to do the movie, and I'm good. I understand. It's Grand Moff Tarkin, no big deal. The other thing that could have been done, and this is not my, I cannot take, credit for this suggestion. This was suggested to me by somebody else. If you didn't have Tarkin, the physical actor available, could he not have been represented via hologram? It's been established that hollow communication, particularly on the Empire side of things, is a frequent form of communication, particularly superiors communicating with underlings, which is what Tarkin would have been with anybody he would have been conversing with in this movie. That would have been a way to get around it. I think they tried it. I think they did a nice job, but it's never good. It doesn't work. And I just don't think it really needed to be in there. Then on top of that, Oh, Carrie Fisher, why in the world did we need to do that for one silly shot? The guy comes through with the plans, and there's a white-cloaked figure on the bridge of the ship or in the main cockpit. We all know exactly who it is, and we could have heard Hope without seeing digitally animated Carrie Fisher. So to me, those things don't work. I think they're two things that speak to... Uh, some things for Rogue One that do not work. Those two in particular, I have some real nitpicky things like the Mustafar scene that I don't like. And I think that Jin Erso and Cassian Andor's death is compromised at the very end of that scene with Diego Luna with his eyes open, looking back toward the camera as if we didn't cut away fast enough um, from him being killed. Little nitpicky stuff to me that keeps this movie from being exceptionally tremendous. So who's following that? Jump in now, because now I'm going to genuinely disagree with Dan. I think you're being way, way too critical of the Peter Cushing inclusion. Um, The hologram point makes some sense. I will concede that. But if you don't have Tarkin physically there, I don't think you get the nice by-play with him and uh, 
and Krennic, which I think is really good. Like, well, I didn't want to embarrass you if it didn't work. Um, you know, like, that's a funny line. It surprised me when I saw it in the theaters. And I don't know, I guess I'm not looking at it with that critical of an eye. Leia, to me, stands out as not as good a job of CGI by that time in the movie, my adrenaline is at such that, that, you know, they've gotten me this far. I'm going to accept whatever they do from here on out. I think dressing another actor up to look like Peter Cushing would have been more distracting than a CGI Peter Cushing. Um, You know, it's not like he's the main villain. He's in what, like four or five scenes. I, I think you're being a bit too critical there, Dan. And Mustafar, I think is an, a neat little look at Darth Vader outside of the setting of a Star Destroyer. I I think if you think about who Darth Vader is as a Sith Lord, it's a little unreasonable to think that he's like out on patrol in a Star Destroyer all the time. It makes more sense that he's in this castle on Mustafar stewing with the dark side, trying to figure out how to get as evil as possible. I think that's a cool scene. I'm going (laughs) to stewing about how to get as evil as possible. I never thought about Vader in that sense uh, i'm going to split the difference on on both you guys because i, I think you're I'll, I'll go the lukewarm take approach and i'll say you're both partially right you're both partially wrong isn't it great i think firstly guy henry deserves all credit for just an incredible pitch perfect peter cushing performance regardless of the digital makeup um or the choice i mean they might as well have just cast him as uh as he does i, I think it, even the way he just hits his r's director krennic is is just so Cushing, he gets the intonation perfect, and I just think I've always found that remarkable. Um, I agree that Tarkin works maybe about half the time. I think his weakest appearance might paradoxically be his first. They just didn't sink enough money into that first scene of his. I really had never considered the the hologram Tarkin approach. That um, also makes a lot of sense, and I'll definitely give that to Dan or whoever told Dan about it, Dan by proxy. I think it is tough. I agree with Josh, though. I think it's tough to make this movie without Tarkin. As for Leia, I guess I could go either way. She has never bugged me as much as it's that ending bit. Um, and maybe it's the same adrenaline that Josh uh, claims, but that has never bugged me the same way. Um, I do think the Mustafar scene, it is cool to see Vader in his element, but the movie doesn't need it ultimately. Like it's a bit, it's a good bit of interplay, but thinking about it, I'm not even certain why Krennic goes to see Vader. Like just to make sure the Emperor is talked to. It's basically like he's just got one more layer of insecurity to make sure that everybody knows he's the guy whose name is on the Death Star somewhere. And yeah, I think it is, to Dan's point, probably a way to just get James Earl Jones in there. But also to Dan's point, boy, imagine if there was no mention, like, you know, Vader's in this timeline, but there's no mention of him until not Tarkin says, inform Lord Vader. And all of a sudden, all of us are like, oh my goodness, it's coming. And yeah, the sheer power of a final, of that final Vader scene there, I think is, is that much stronger. But yeah, that's, uh, I'd say, yeah, my, my opinions are thoroughly middling in this area. They kind of get it right and they kind of get it wrong. In terms of the Mustafar scene, if I remember correctly, I think that Krennic was summoned there by Vader. And there is that interesting scene where, like, there's a moment where Krennic is kind of surprised that Vader's not going to kill him. I I found that scene to be maybe endearing isn't quite the right word, but, like, I guess made the scene a little bit more worth it. But, you know, you know, we spent some time talking about the character of Tarkin, and, 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 and that makes me think of one other key character that we haven't talked about, and maybe it's telling that we haven't talked about him just yet, um, and that's Cassian Andor. Um, you know, I think he's emblematic of a rebel, 
he looks like a rebel. Um, I think one of, for me, one of his strongest scenes or perhaps most compelling scenes happens early on when he's getting that intel from his source and the source says like everything's falling apart and Cassian just shoots him, right? So you kind of get this like ruthless side of a rebel that, you know, in that part of the movie, I was wondering, like, okay, are they going to turn him into an anti-hero sort of thing, where, where the quality, where, where you're, where you can't necessarily agree with his morals or all of his ethics, but you're still rooting for him, and maybe it's that his story got, for me, overshadowed by Jin's for obvious reasons. Maybe it's that that story wasn't entirely fleshed out, but I find myself enjoying his performance while watching the movie but not feeling like i need to come back not feeling like i need to come back to this movie for him i come back to this movie for a ton of reasons he's not necessarily one of the top ones i think uh, you're right jay i think diego luna does a, a really good job with care with a character who is maybe the thinnest on paper i feel like in a in part the movie's not sure what he's supposed to be I do like that his he he does exist in sort of that gray area that you know he's told by uh, with General Draven I think uh, the intelligence guy to be like look no if you find Galen Ursa you take him out when you have the chance we can't you know we can't be having this kind of stuff around the galaxy um, and yeah that first scene is is definitely trying to make a statement about who he is and I do think there is a bit of that ruthlessness to it but I that scene's always made me sad because it's like the Imperials are coming his buddy can't climb this wall that he's about to escape over because he's got his arm so he's just like. I'm sorry, man. The better th- it's like Picard uh, phasering some uh, fallen ensign in first contact. You know, you you, you feel bad for it, but like he's, there's nothing else he can do for you at this moment. And uh, interestingly enough, though he's maybe the guy we've spoken the least about, he's the one who's getting a Disney Plus show. It should be said. Um, I think it'll be interesting. I believe uh, Alan Tudyk is returning as K2 as well, um, and it'll certainly be interesting to revisit that era of, uh, of Star Wars and, and Rebel intelligence, but. It is an interesting, uh, especially on the heels of the Mandalorian, that's an interesting choice, one might say. Yeah, I think Cassian's character goes to that nuanced rebels picture that, that I was talking about a bit earlier. Yeah, you know, we've yeah. never seen a rebel who would do that kind of thing before. As far as his, you know, his, his show on Disney Plus coming up, if it's with Alan Tudyk and, and as K2, I think that that as a, as a buddy, you know, buddy sort of TV show, uh, is is set up good. Another one that would be good is Baze and Chirut. I mean, those two guys are terrific together. Oh. They also, it, it, this is a very serious, very violent movie for a Star Wars movie. And these two guys sprinkle some, do a good job of sprinkling some comedy in, uh, especially like when they put the bag over um, Chirut's head and he's like, are you kidding me? I'm blind. Uh, yeah. You know, the, there aren't that many of those comedic moments, but those two guys do a nice job of sprinkling those in while also um, conveying the deep friendship that they've had over a number of years. Is I uh, know it's a good, um, any, uh, let's wrap up Rogue One here. And I want to offer anybody, if there's something we've missed so far that you just wanted to, to name drop um, real quick uh, or just mention. Yeah, I'll start. We haven't mentioned Mads Mikkelsen, which is an actor that I, I really like, but he, in far too many of his movies, he just doesn't get a whole heck of a lot to do. I think he's good in the scenes uh, that Galen Urso gets in this movie. He just doesn't get a whole lot to do, but I do enjoy Mads Mikkelsen, the Galen Urso character. Uh, pretty cool. And uh, Borgullet is stupid. Thank you. Lies. Deception. 
Borgala is totally fine. You guys are being way oh, hard on my boy. This one, I did time out because I knew you guys were going to go after my boy, Borgullet. He's only on screen for 45 seconds. Forrest no, Whitaker, even like, Dan, you, you, you and I have been pronouncing it Borgullet. Forrest Whitaker even like crams it all into one syllable. Borgullet! Borgullet! He will know the truth. Yeah, I didn't know what the heck to call the thing. The first time we saw this movie, I, I, like, I, he says it like three different ways. And when you have to look up the tentacle alien creature in the scrolling credits at the end of the movie, you're watching for the wrong thing. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and it may only be 45 seconds, but it's 45 stupid seconds. And this is, this is the problem with Rogue One, is there are these little details. And if you pay attention to the little details and you get all the little things right, that's what takes a very good or great movie and turns it into excellent. And that it just isn't there for me because of those little detail things. You turned 10% of this critical eye towards rise of Skywalker. You would never watch that movie again. I am incredibly dismayed. The conversation by... is completely different. We were talking about Rise of Skywalker and what was good and what was not about that movie. Now we are turning a critical eye towards Rogue One. Rogue One is better than Rise of Skywalker. I'm the Rise of Skywalker guy, and I will admit that. But Rogue One had a chance to be absolutely stinking phenomenal and it misses that mark by not fine-tuning the details. How dare you? How dare I mean, Dan, you mentioned my hot take earlier. If, if you, for some reason, were going to say that Rogue One is not better than The Rise of Skywalker, then we would have to be sending Borgullet after you to suck the truth out of you. I'll say, the thing that irritates me the most about the Borgullet scene is not actually Borgullet, but more the scene ahead of time, as we've already referenced, the, the you know, as Saw Guerrero takes a puff out of his inhaler and then, you know, squeezes it all out. Borgullet! Like, Gabe, like you said, I couldn't tell what he was saying the first time. Um, but, Gabe, just to go back to your last point and to echo something that Josh said, um, Josh, I'm glad that you brought up Bays and Chirrut. You know, that, that, that tandem is perhaps, for me, one of the most memorable parts of this movie. And, and the deep affection that you can tell that they have for one another, um, especially, you know, as as Baze is looking back at Chirrut when he is dying they're you know, they're not together in that moment. They're not next to each other, but I actually had to be reminded of that when I was rewatching and I felt like they were closer together than they actually were in that last moment. Um, but that, that deep affection that they, sh that they share for each other is it's consistent throughout the entire movie. You can feel it throughout the entire movie and it really comes to a head in that moment. Last th positive thing I'll say about uh, Rogue One uh, to convey some of the deep respect and admiration that I actually do have for my older brother. I love Mads Mikkelsen's hologram speech, especially the way they edited it, where when he says one blast to the reactor, will you know, will bring the whole thing down. And when he says blast is the exact moment when the Death Star blasts Jetta City. Really, really neat. Um, detail that they did focus on, Dan, that does, in my opinion, make Rogue One a great movie. So even when he is expressing his admiration for you, he still finds a way to, to put a little dig in there, Dan. That's just the way that younger brothers Dave, roll. I got to say for myself, I, I can't quite put down this Borgullet thing yet. 
And I just want to say that I know exactly what to do with the 45 seconds you excise from the movie with the removal of that scene, which A, you don't, if you, let's say they just beat him up. You know, they're trying to get, they're trying to make sure he's telling the truth, right? If you beat him up, you don't need this whole thing where like he's maybe going to lose his memory completely and it, it's going to take a whole scene and a cutaway for him to, you know, talk to Cassian at the right moment as Jed is blowing up, which is a great scene. The Galen Urso hologram scene, that is, uh, that is a fantastic scene. But also, like, I, what you do is you take those 45 seconds out because we don't need a tentacle mind-reading alien that's just there for the effects budget and, you know, some contract checkoff. What you do is you need one scene, and I think this fixes one aspect of the movie that I think is a little rushed. You, you, put, you spend 45 seconds as the Rebel Council is forming, and it's as everybody's just filing in. The whole Rogue One crew has already taken their seats. And don't forget, they're just coming off having this big old fight because Jyn Erso realizes that Cassian was there on Edu to actually kill her father. She just got her last moments with them. She doesn't have the recording. Everything's kind of in shambles. And after the council scene, which is cool, it's a good scene, then Cassian shows up with a bunch of soldiers. He's like, yeah, you're right, we're going to go do this. It's a little quick, and it's not imperfect. It doesn't ruin the movie for me. But I feel like something that sets things in place really nicely is just again 45 seconds with all those characters just kind of looking at each other even as the council is going on because what they're doing is they're hearing all of these people that weren't there who didn't see what they were seeing talking about what to do i think you can have a silent acknowledgement at the start of that scene that they're all actually okay they've just been through a lot and just sort of silent you know cut around to the characters this is guys this is what we need to do i (laughs) i will take the ring to mordor lies deception all right, so all right. No, Mr. Guerrero is right, and we don't want to anger him. His uh, his robot asthma flares up, so we want to. We're gonna give Saw some space. Yeah, as a fellow CPAP user, I I stick up for for Saw Guerrero. <laughs> Solidarity at its best. Wrapping up the Rogue One bit here. Um, you guys, as usual, are are making a heck of a case for the points. Um, and uh, I feel like every time, no matter the point value, it gets harder and harder to to try and stall while I decide who to give these points to at the last minute. No, I'm kidding. Um, This actually, I think it was spirited conversation, but I want to return. I think this first Rogue One point goes to Dan. Um, And it's because right out of the gate, he identified the, what Josh labeled the transcendent part of the movie. It's, it's the Vader bit. And I think he even made the point I was going to make later that you just have that moment that Vader is nothing more than this terrifying force in this movie. And it's so much stronger that way. What came close, uh, the details almost, Cinched your victory, and then I had to back off a little bit the comment of the details because that kind of cuts both ways. For every detail that they maybe sort of miss in Rogue One, they have a really a fine detail somewhere just waiting to be uh, waiting to be seen, like archival footage of Gold Leader that you would later see, uh, you know, left over from 1977, seeing him in this raid here, a neat trick. But Dan still gets the point for uh, really pointing out the the biggest strength of this movie, even in those last 45 minutes. I am one with the Force, and the Force is with me. And with that, we'll move on to question two, our two-point question. Jordan, starting with you, what do you love about Star Wars Episode Eight: The Last Jedi, and what doesn't work for you? You know, we talked about Rogue One, how, for me, one of the things that's so great about Rogue One is how it's cohesive and how it's condensed. For me, The Last Jedi gets a lot of points for what it does on more of a macro and grand scale. Um, And I distinctly remember seeing this movie for the second time, Gabe, with you. I think I had seen it for the first time, maybe with Josh, maybe you and I went to, yeah, Josh, you and I went together to see it the first time. We both enjoyed it the first time, but I feel like we both left it kind of 
you know, we liked it, but we weren't necessarily like, this is great. And Gabe, you and I, I remember we had a conversation ahead of the second viewing and you talked about, you know, that line that Kylo Ren has several times throughout this movie, leaving the past behind, kill it if you have to. Um, and how that is very much the thesis of this film and how they're taking all these things that we know about Star Wars and taking all these things that we know about the Force, taking all these things that we know about the Resistance or the Rebellion or the Empire, the First Order, and saying, get rid of the past, kill it if you have to, leave it behind, kill it if you have to. When I had that kind of lens, that thesis in my head going into the second viewing, everything fell into place. And I distinctly remember getting to the end and being like, this is a brilliant film. This is absolutely fantastic. And a couple of the specific examples of that, you know, one thing that I really, really like that they do is how they provide a more complicated and honest view of the Jedi. You know, early on, you have Luke talking to Rey about how at the height of their power, they let the Sith, you know, basically take control of the entire Republic. Um, and how the story of the Jedi is really a story of hubris and a story of pride and a story of failure. Um, and yet these are the heroes that we've been following for years and years and years. Um, so that the way that this movie just takes all of our expectations, takes all of our preconceptions and complicates them. It doesn't just like throw them away. It doesn't just say like, no, we're going to go, go in a totally different direction, but it just makes the world that we've already been living in and the world that we've already fallen in love with, it makes it more complex. And I think in that sense, makes it feel a little bit more real. Um, so just to kind of begin the conversation for me, you know, what this movie does thematically with the Star Wars universe, I think in kind of turning some of those things on its head or complicating those things, I think is a huge strong point of the film. Jay, you're 100% right. And I, um, I remember this, uh, this conversation and this viewing. This is something that I come away sort of refreshed with every time I watch this movie is um, Ryan Johnson is doing his utmost to challenge every expectation you have about Star Wars. It doesn't go necessarily opposite how you think it's going to. But I mean, look, again, you're talking theses that are theses that are playing in the movie Luke says it too. This is not going to go the way you think. And from the first fantastic moment when, when presented with his lightsaber, Luke regards it and tosses it over his shoulder. Yeah, that's Ryan Johnson throwing out the playbook on this one. And I think it's, um, uh, it is great filmmaking. Uh, it, it asks us to challenge what we think Star Wars is. And, and I think it's got a lot of chutzpah in doing that on its own merit too. Gabe, as you said, it's it's playing with our expectations, it, you know, uh, referencing what, what Luke said, like, this is not going to go the way, and and, and, and the more rewatches, I think, Gabe, where you're right, I think what what we benefit from is that, you know, there's a, there's a breaking of the fourth wall that's going on there that you yeah. recognize the more and more that you see it, that that conversation is not just happening with the characters in the film, but it's also Ryan Johnson saying that to us. Yeah, he definitely, um, I remember seeing that in the theater the first time, and I think the, the Poe storyline is very interesting in that, um, in that regard. I mean, the whole time you think he's going to, you know, pull off the secret plan that's going to save everybody because that's what the long shots are always what work in star Wars. Um, and yeah, I mean, Poe's lesson in this partially is to, I mean, learn to play with others effectively. I mean, the heroics, I mean, here, Ryan Johnson saying, you know, why it's, it's accepting that, okay, yeah, this is part of star Wars, but then, okay, why is it, when is this a good idea? Um, sort of in keeping with how we were discussing Rogue One showing a, a more multifaceted version of the rebellion. I think we have another look at the resistance, the rapidly dwindling resistance um, in this movie. Uh, and again, that there are, 
there are things above your pay grade, Poe. Um, there are, you know, you don't, playing the hero can get everybody killed. Um, again, as we see from that, from that first uh, sequence. Yeah, yeah this, this whole movie does a, a phenomenal job at undercutting our own expectations. It knows, this, this is a movie that knows what the audience expects of it and moves sideways at every turn. I find this movie difficult to watch now knowing what comes after it because um, this movie really stands out now as almost like the, um, like the misfit child among these three movies, two of which that are clearly aligned in the JJ Abrams universe of, of what the sequel trilogy was going to entail for these characters and for the force and for the Jedi and so on and so forth. And I mean, part of what makes this movie so good is that yet yeah, it flies in the face of our star Wars conventions. And that's kind of neat. The idea that, Je- you know, Jedi is not some kind of birthright. It's not some kind of Holy family thing. There's no lineage. Anybody can use the force. And I mean, I, I don't want to touch on it because I, I am pretty sure it's Josh's. I mentioned our top 10 favorite scenes in all of Star Wars, and I'm pretty sure I know Josh's number one and it comes in this movie. So I don't, I don't want to touch that. But this movie does a lot of things really well. I mean, Poe has to develop, but I think he's pretty annoying through most of this movie. Um, I have big issues with the Finn and Rose storyline where they go to get the master code breaker because as it turns out, they don't even need that. That doesn't actually go anywhere except to kill Captain Phasma, who we thought from Force Awakens was going to be this big baddie and then kind of is eliminated halfway through the movie. I, I didn't even remember. Oh, that's right. Phasma's in it. Oh, cool. Oh, wait, she's gone. Okay. Well, that's, that's too bad. But I, I think the crux of this movie, the strength of this movie, involves three characters. I have four, four characters. The three that I was going to say initially are Kylo Ren, Rey, Luke Skywalker, and then to a slightly lesser extent, Leia. Now, by all accounts, Rise of Skywalker was supposed to be Leia's movie, and that didn't happen, and it's super unfortunate the reasons why it didn't happen. Han got his movie in Force Awakens, and this is Luke's movie. And, and I mean, you guys said it right from the get-go when he chucks the lightsaber over his shoulder. We all chuckled in the movie theater. But when you watch it, you know, more times, you realize, like, okay, that is a very telling gesture. Things are going to be very different here. And Luke is clearly broken up by all that has gone on. But those three characters and the way they align in this movie, uh, I think, are tremendous. You know, to me, the standout, I'm going to say there's two standout scenes for me. The one is in Snoke's throne room with Snoke and Ray and Ren. And it's obviously when Snoke dies, he thinks he knows what's going on. And Ren has figured out the way to eliminate his master. And he thinks he's going to turn Ray. And they think they're in this together. And they are, you know, when they battle those, you know, royal guards. And, and that scene is that scene is just awesome there. It is kind of neat. The, the one thing that does sort of carry over to the next movie is their teamwork in that scene does carry over then into the end of rise of Skywalker. And so, and so that's kind of neat. And then, I mean, Luke down on crate is just, it's phenomenal. He, his walk into the room. And then when he goes out there and it's fire, everything at him, kill that man. And it's just going and going and going. And I think, I think you got him. 
and the little dust off of the shoulder that Mark Hamill gives is just priceless. And then, of course, the very end, you know, see you around, kid. It's just phenomenal. So Mark Hamill okay. delivers. Mark Hamill delivers in a big way. Sets the stage for Ray and Ren. Um, you know, I know the payoff in Rise of Skywalker isn't what everybody wanted, but to me, the movie really the strength of the movie is on their three shoulders and, and, and Leia too, to a slightly lesser extent, although unfortunately she spends about half the movie, um, you know, in a medical bay. Dan, you forgot about the most important character in the whole movie, Broom Boy. That's my favorite scene in this movie. Dan, it may be my favorite scene in all of Star Wars. Jay, I remember leaving the theater when you and I saw it this movie together for the first time on a much higher note um and maybe in like discussing the movie in the parking lot we you know we maybe were able to find you know some some holes to poke in it as as dan says there are um there are holes to be found in this movie but i left the theater on such a high from that that 20 seconds of the kid reaching for the broom and grabbing it with the force and then staring out the window with his resistance ring on and turning the broomstick upside down and you know imagining that it's a lightsaber and it just transported me with this emphasizing this power of imagination whether it's pretending a broomstick is a lightsaber or dan in the backyard with a wiffle ball bat pretending you're ken griffey jr oh like people do with a hairbrush pretending it's a microphone the power of imagination is so strong especially for kids and i just found that to be such a poignant and uplifting message i i'm getting emotional talking about it. i i really really love that scene so much and i'm genuinely not sure how it fits into the themes of the rest of the movie um you know, it, it may have been that Ryan Johnson just threw it in there because Broom Boy is going to be the subject of his, you know, next trilogy whenever he gets to make it. I don't know. I, I just found that, to, to, like I said, to be so, so poignant. I loved it so much. The, the last thing that, that I'll just mention quick and then maybe someone else can pick up on it. I think the the force timing between Kylo Ren and Rey was a tremendous idea to get those two characters a bunch of screen time together and a not, you know, a sometimes adversarial, but really just kind of feeling each other out sort of relationship. I thought that was such a good idea. And those are some of my favorite. I think something this movie does exceedingly well is it recenters the force in a much more sort of magical, spiritual way, especially after the Lucas with the prequels had sort of tried to, and you know, it's not necessarily in itself a bad thing. Um, but in, you know, introducing the midichlorians and all that kind of stuff, we're now looking at sort of a scientific biological way that the force exists. Um, and this movie returns, I think, the, the mythic nature of the force really well. At the same time, shows us some really neat new tricks. I, I think this is nowhere better exemplified than the force timing that we've referenced here. It, it's such an intimate way to connect these characters. You know, I mean, I mean it's almost, it is almost like they're, you know, sneaking on their cell phones after hours when the parents are asleep. You know, they're they're not supposed to be talking about how Kylo Ren became Kylo Ren, but the phone line's open, so you know they're going to have this discussion. And just the, the even the fact that they don't know what's going on, that they're trying to figure it out at the same time we are, that they just sort of have this connection and they make what they will of it, it is a great way to drive both character and plot. Um, and it's such a simple trick too. I mean, I'm starting to think that some of the best uses of the Force are really low tech 
zero special effect. I mean, you think of a force choke. That's, you know, a guy in a Darth Vader suit holding his hand up in the, air, in the air and a guy across the room pretending to choke. You don't need any laser blast effects or lightsabers. I mean, that's just acting. And here you just have two different camera setups and two different, you know, they're having you shoot it like you would a conversation. Um, no special effects trickery necessary. I, I think it's a, a gorgeous trick and a really efficient one. I think as far as Broom Boy goes, Josh, to your point there, I think thematically that's the perfect cap to the movie. And somehow I always forget after the Falcon zooms out, I'm always in my head, I'm always thinking about like, yeah, the last image is the, is everybody collected on the Falcon? You know, how are we going to build a resistance from this? Yeah, we have everything we need. But no, they go back to, uh, back to Canto Bite and they have this, yeah, really inspiring, you know, tear jerking little moment. Um, and, and I think that is the point. I mean, don't forget at this point, Ray has been told that her parents are nobody. Um, and, and in keeping with, I have a quote here I wanted to refer to, um, in keeping with what we've talked about with Ryan Johnson wanting to continue, not just to subvert expectations, but question them. Um, he said something to the effect of that Ray learning her parents were nobodies would be the hardest thing that both she and the audience could hear. He compared it to Luke learning that Vader is his father. So at this point, you know, the easiest thing for Ray and the audience to hear is, yeah, you're somebody, you're related to, I don't know, say a Palpatine. But the fact that she would then have to, I mean, it's almost, you know, the wish fulfillment thing. You know, we all wish we're somebody special, we're descended from something, you know, or maybe our father is the evil king, whatever, but, you know, we come by this. But it's much harder for Ray to make her own way, to stand on her own two feet um, and not have that story be ready-made. And, and, you know, whatever missteps Rise of Skywalker follows with, um, I think that is hugely powerful. Um, the notion is that, yeah, this can be anybody. I mean, Luke says it. The notion that if the Jedi die, the light dies is vanity. The force is there, whether we like it or not, for, you know, whoever to, for, for everybody. Yeah, I think this movie is just a collection of great directorial decisions by Ryan Johnson. You know, we talked about the force timing. Um, and not only is that, you know, just such a simple way to start to develop that relationship, but it's also like you've got two of your best actors, right? But they don't really have a logical way to interact with one another, but wouldn't it be great if we yeah. could get an instance where they're, where, where they're having a prolonged conversation with each other. And, and here's the simple way to do that. And it's just a great way of extending that. And then, I should go back to what I was talking about earlier in terms of, you know, the Gabe, the, the, the thesis that, that you kind of articulated for me before the second time that we saw this um, about, you know, leaving the past behind, killing it if you have to. You know, we talked about the throne room scene and that, that, that scene is just visually stunning. It's visually beautiful. It's a beautiful, beautiful scene. But then I'm also always struck by the end of that scene when Ren is then, you know, thinking that Ray is going to join him. And it's like, no, 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 wait a minute. You don't even get your own message because this is what happened in Empire, right? You know, Vader's saying, you, you know, now join me on the dark side. So it's, it's this great moment of even as Ryan Justin Johnson has been challenging our expectations and playing with our expectations throughout the entire movie, he's now playing on the playing of our expectations. And I think that's just a, such a complicated and, and such, a, such a fun component of that scene. Completely right, Jay. And while we're talking about um, you know, things that we, at the baseline, just sort of like in this movie, I just want to reference a couple other scenes that I think really um, stand out in this film. It was mentioned that pretty much anything with Luke is is gold in this movie, and I think Mark Hamill turns in fantastic work here. I think the uh, 
a scene that's always stood out for me is his discussion with Ray uh, at the top of the rock on Octo about what the force is, the first lesson scene. Um, he has her sit on the rock and there's that great interlude first where he says, you know, sit down and reach out. And she does. And he gives it like, she, she can't see it. Her eyes are closed. And, and Hamill has like five fantastic expressions in the space of about two seconds where he's like disappointed, like, oh, come on. And then he sees that, you know, he's holding this branch and he sees that she's not noticing and you can see him sort of make the decision to do it. And then there's that little, you know, mischievous Luke gleam in his eye as he tickles her hand. Do you feel that? Oh my God, I feel it. Yeah, that's the force. No, wrong, lies, deceptions. But it, again, and the way he describes the force, and this is, you know, um, for as much as we laud Ryan Johnson for his directorial choices, I think they're on full display here, uh, as well as maybe some of the best writing of the movie. The way he describes the force as the balance, this tension between all living things, as as Ray is sort of feeling her way from the macro to the micro on the island. You know, you uh, there's life, there's all this lush growth, and then beneath it, you know, death and decay that feeds new growth. Um, peace, violence, and all the, you know, finding the balance between that. I think that that goes a long way, I think, toward restoring that kind of mysticism of, of the force. I think that was always uh, a scene broken down really well. And similarly, um, I think toward the end of that, the scene where Yoda reappears as Luke resolves to burn down the Jedi Temple is, uh, is additionally striking. Not only do we get Frank Oz back with a puppet Yoda, which is like all we all really want in life, it's a phenomenal scene where Yoda is still teaching Luke uh, and Luke, you know, learns that there is still, there are other, you know, there's other things than, than these. Uh, Yoda's final line that masters, you know, we are what they grow beyond is I think an all timer. Um, and we thought the book had been written on Yoda. Uh, even his little cackle as he, as he's lightning strikes down on that is just pure empire. This scene is is also one of the best scenes by far well put Gabe in this particular movie this scene reminds me of empire yoda it's playful funny kind of quirky zany poke fun at you yoda which is the yoda that we all were introduced to in empire and we all fell in love with when he's toying around with luke's lunch and he's you know having fun with r2d2 and that's the yoda that we love and you know page turners they were not i mean what a, just what a fun great line about the about the jedi text and and he does what luke can't do right luke wants to burn the whole thing down and yoda says all right if, if you think that's the best thing to do bang we're just gonna go ahead and do it and it's totally fine you get that wonderful scene of just you know the two of them cozy up on a log together basically you know the old timers breaking it down about the next generation and what's going to come. And we talked about in our Rogue One discussion about where are we going to see Darth Vader? When's he going to show up? What's he going to do? I hadn't even considered the idea of seeing Yoda in The Last Jedi. And then he sort of subtly and the music creeps in and you think, oh my God, it's going to happen. And Gabe, to your point, puppet Yoda, and he looks tremendous and he's playful and it's, it's perfect. It's not overkill. It's about a three minute scene, probably soup to nuts. And it's all you need. And it's wonderful. You guys are absolutely right about all this. This is such a lovely scene. I, I love the way you put that, Dan, the old timers day at uh at star wars um but i also think that like luke's humanity really shows up 
well in this scene and in the movie all together. Um, in this scene, when they're talking about the Jedi texts and, and Yoda's like, like, have you read those? And, get, and Luke gives us kind of like, ah, well, yeah, which, you know, this halting, hesitant answer, which um, as someone who is not a tremendous student myself, I can sympathize with that. But he does it also, the joke that he plays on Ray with the little, with the little read during the, during her first lesson, the, the wink that he gives to 3PO uh, down on crate, uh, see around kid. Not the first scene we get, with Luke, but in the sort of a, a day in the life of Luke Skywalker, when he's jumping across that chasm and Ray shouts out, be careful. And the side eye that, that he shoots back at Ray, like, are you kidding me? Like I do this, you know, every time I need to catch a fish, like just calm down. Don't forget Luke's, about the blue mill. Yeah, Luke's humanity is really shows up in this, uh, which, which fits into the character themes and the directorial choices that, that Jordan's been talking about. Um, Luke is not a legend. He is a real person who interacts with the force. And, and that's really like that as a theme, you know, considering how quirky Yoda is and how human Luke is and Ray being, uh, you know, from no one. And then broom boy at the end, like that sort of theme, I, I think definitely carries through and, it's made it really, really fun to watch by Hamill's performance. And, you know, coming on the heels of The Force Awakens, which was really A New Hope 2.0, you know, it, it's cool to see a different type of mentor than we've seen in terms of, in terms of Jedi men, you know, Jedi masters or, or mentor Jedi um, so far, I mean, you get Qui-Gon from, from Phantom Menace, you have obviously Obi-Wan, but, you know, it, I, I guess I'm thinking about it right now, Luke's mentor role is kind of a, a mix between the two. Qui-Gon is a little bit more playful. Obi-Wan is, you know, you know, at, at least we see him in A New Hope is, is you know, I can think bit more on the stoic side but can be you know can be a playful hermit too but i think it's just such a again it's it's playing with the expectations playing with the expectations consistently throughout and this is this speaks to some of the controversy quote unquote you know amongst the star wars fandom about um the last jedi uh, i think a lot of it revolves around luke's characterization um, you know, much was made of the fact that apparently during shooting, Mark Hamill was concerned about the direction of the character. Um, he he since, you know, walked that back a little bit and said it was very similar to, you know, the squabbles he would have with George Lucas filming on the original trilogies, which <laughs> I can only imagine. For a movie that is also all about, you know, again, subverting expectations and humanizing every bit of, of Star Wars that it can, I think it makes so much sense that Luke kind of follows in the in the footsteps of his hermit masters you know his, his own teachers um you know the, the crucial moment of decision in the narrative um for a lot of this which is you know in the past we see it a couple times through a couple different versions but the ben solo's wake up before he's kylo ren to see luke skywalker over him you know perhaps contemplating his death it's it's a heavy decision moment and what i think is so great about mark hamill is i think we he's got a life there sure and he is living but he's you can see this weighing on him. He failed just as everybody before him, and he's going to take the rest of the Jedi down with him. He, he is the last one. He is the last Jedi, you know, really when this starts in a way, and, and he's resolved when Rey finds him that that's, that's going to be how it is. It's time for the Jedi to die. 
no Jedi, no Sith, start over. And, and honestly, I, having watched this again, I do kind of wish that there had been the chutzpah at Disney or from J.J. or some combination thereof at Lucasfilm to actually say, like, yeah, let's do away with all of this, and episode nine is going to be something fresh and new. But that's a podcast for another day. All that to say, really, that yeah, Mark Hamill is a, is a national treasure and so good um, in every frame of this movie, whether he's playful Luke, whether he's master Luke, whether he's you know, guilty Luke, um, or whether he's, I also think his, how long had we been waiting to see master Jedi, Luke Sky, Jedi master Luke Skywalker step out and hand the first order their butts. And he, it, they set it up to do just that. I mean, we're, just while we're talking again about excellent scenes, they set up that it looks like he's going to do just that. And what a stroke of genius I think it is to have this be a purely defensive maneuver ultimately what a way to use the force for a Jedi, not to come through and, you know, not to call out Yoda in the prequels, but to, you know, jumping bean your way, slicing through the legs of the giant walkers or anything, or, you know, fencing Kylo Ren that way, but to just hold on, buy time, you know, taunt him a little bit, even to show up in the same guise that in the same way you would have looked to Kylo, Kylo Ren last time he laid eyes on him. I, there's again, the details, so many of them are so well considered in this film. Yeah, what do you think I'm going to do? Stand with, with a laser sword and face down the entire First Order? Well, yeah, but not, yeah. not in the way you think. Exactly. So, I mean, we've talked about a lot of the things that we love about this movie. Um, I, I do have to make sure that we bring up Canto Bite, which we've talked about already, you know, in terms of the pros. Um, you know, Josh, you talked about Broom Boy, and I think you hit all of the nails directly on the head right there but for me that is a that's a scene that i find i find less enjoyable not the broom boy scene at the end but rather the canto bite scene earlier on the canto bite scene earlier on is a scene that i find less and less enjoyable the more and more i watch it you know there's obviously something thematic that they're doing there and that is a strong point you know i think it does this nice job of kind of taking this star wars world that we already know and blowing it up a little bit in terms of you know we know about the first order we know about the resistance we know about the rebellion we know about the empire but then there's this whole economic working behind it as well which grounds it a little bit in you know sort of issues that we can maybe connect to and find a little bit more relatable but then you know the idea of them you know kind of riding the, the what were those 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 animals called again bothers bothers sounds like fathers, but whatever they are and however you say their names like riding them through and kind of like you know busting busting down that that establishment that felt over the top to me um a lot of the a lot of the different parts in that scene feel a little bit over the top and i think some of them are purposeful for me it doesn't it doesn't do it for me i guess i guess i guess is where i'm coming down on it yeah you're not going to get too much critical out of me about canto bite because of old broomy but um I, i i do think that like I think they're trying to continue with this defying expectations, playing on expectations in that, you know, we're going to find the master code breaker and they don't even give this guy a name, which should have been a clue that we're probably not going to come home with this guy. Rose and Finn are so emphatic and so excited. It's the red plot bloom. It's the master code breaker. Our plan is going to work. And then it doesn't, um, but then that kind of ends up not mattering because, oops, we find Benicio del Toro 
in our jail cell and turns out he's a master code breaker too, which makes me think, well, gee whiz, how many master code breakers are there in this Star Wars universe? You know, maybe you should just asked around the ship that you were on. Maybe one of them could have done it. It's not the strongest. I like the Fathiers. Um, I, you know, maybe it's because my kids are super into animals. I, I think, you know, animals in Star Wars tends to go over well. Um, I, I think I think they're cool, um, but yeah, not the strongest uh, sequence for sure. But probably a little higher on it than you are, Jay. To me, it just that that scene reeked of CGI overload, which these movies I thought did a really good job of of getting away from. Um, to your guys' point, I mean, yeah, I agree. I, I think you know they're clearly trying to establish this good guys versus bad guys but there's this this hazy middle or there really is no good guys and there really is no bad guys there's just guys but the benicio del toro character he never comes back to do anything ever again and that whole mission was a flunk failure in the end and that didn't matter so that whole tangent doesn't really have any any weight or any gravity to it in the end except for josh's beloved broom boy which admittedly is a very nice and sweet ending to that movie and i think we all enjoyed the direction that they took the force but that's a pretty sizable chunk of the film that doesn't really move the needle for for most of us i think so i can agree i will agree that i think it is kind of weak on plot but i think it is thematically strong for however little it makes use of Finn in this movie. And, and just for the record, I think John Boyega is a fantastic actor and he's fantastic as Finn. And he's been shortchanged by just about every movie since the last 20 minutes of Force Awakens. That said, I think the notion is, because at the start of this movie, you know, you sort of think that John Boyega, that Finn has left the last movie being like, all right, cool, I found my people. At the start of this movie, it's more like, okay, he's found Ray and they're tremendous friends and they're gonna stick together through thick and thin, only they're separated. So he's going to go out to her because that's that's what he's going to do. Finn's arc in this movie is, I think, learning to find his place again, but not but in sort of two different ways, either within the resistance or on his own terms. And I think he does both. I, I admit it's a little weak, but I think thematically it, how it plays out is the reason, obviously, that DJ um, Benicio Del Toro's character is there at all is to introduce this area of gray, this question mark in Finn's existence. Like, it's not as cut and dry as you think it is stay free, don't join, you know, there's bad guys all over the place. So then it becomes that much more important that Finn makes the choice and he does it for himself. And by the very end, I, I mean, I remember the first time I saw this, I thought uh, when Finn makes his near suicide run into the, the, uh, the Death Star battering ram, I thought that was gonna be it. I thought based on the cojones this movie had shown so far, they were gonna throw the gauntlet down and that was gonna be the end of Finn. It's a good thing too, because it's far better to keep John, Boy John Boyega around than get rid of him. Um, that didn't happen. And, but what happened was you saw him made the choice in that. You saw him make the choice in that scene that in that moment, he decides that the, this resistance, the people he's leaving behind there are more important that they go on other than him. He's found his place. He's done that bit. I will say it, it takes, I think a little bit of, you know, Indiana Jones red dot plotting to sort of find that arc uh, as it's currently presented. I think upon rewatching, and I, I'm curious as to what you guys think of this, um, what I'm going to propose here. I think to remake Last Jedi, you switch Poe and Finn's plot lines. I think you send Poe with Rose out into the galaxy to go and do the hero thing that's going to save the day 
because that's also Poe's arc. He thinks he's on the, you don't, don't even need to necessarily find a master code breaker, but imagine say putting Poe Dameron in that, you know, white suit with the red plon bloom or something like that. You, you can tweak it however you want, but you send him across the galaxy and you keep Finn on the resistance ship and you, and you have him learn that it is more than just your friends, that it, it what it takes to run a resistance. You start to put him into a position of power. He's all of a sudden almost maybe in two Star Trek away, but he's got to learn to deal with the day-to-day. You can still get some of John Boyega's great humor with Finn out of that situation. I think maybe you gain something doing those two things. Yeah, and, and I'm a little concerned to do this, Gabe, since you're going to be the one doling out points here at the end, but I do think Uh-oh. I'm going to disagree with you um, yeah, sure. for, for, two, for two reasons. One, as you brought up earlier with Benicio Del, Del, Del Toro's character, you know, he is kind of instructing Finn in a way um, about what the possibilities of this universe are. So if you're not having that interaction, then you're not having that possibility. But more specifically for Poe, I think it's really, really important for Poe to be seeing the different types of reb or rather resistance leadership that he's, um, that he's encountering. I mean, he obviously has a great deal of admiration for Leia, but then, General Holdor, you know, he has a very kind of tense relationship with her throughout, but comes to appreciate it later on and comes to understand the sacrifices that she's willing to make and what her actual mentality was throughout. If you have Poe on this mission throughout that entire um, throughout that entire experience, you're then not getting those interactions, or at the very least, you're not allowing us to see those interactions as they're occurring. Yeah, I, I think Poe's arc in this is Leia puts it beautifully, get your head out of your cockpit. Like if you're gonna <laughs> if you're gonna be the the leader, you have to not only think as an X Wing pilot and and you know forcing him to take a back seat through through much of the movie, which he's clearly not comfortable doing. And so he tries to organize this side hustle teaches him the lesson that he needs I, I i agree that finn deserves better i just i don't know how you know i'm not creative enough to organically think of what that could have been yeah i think i think that they were in a really tough spot with these four characters finn poe ray and kylo ren they're, they're all so great and if you know unlike these podcasts they don't like to have those movies go like four hours long um you know, so the, there's only so much time that they can give to all of them. They they did their best. Canto Bite wasn't amazing, but they tried to cr- create this, you know, this other friendship uh, w- with Rose uh, and Finn that, you know, so so Finn ends up believing that it's not just Ray that he's out for, uh, but there's there's other people along the way also. That's an important point you make about Finn having a little more skin in the game by the end of this movie with now Rose in the equation from a, a friend standpoint. But again, the, the point that I made kind of right at the beginning of this conversation, it's hard to analyze this movie in the vacuum of itself because we know what comes next and what comes next is Rose is barely a background character in the rise of Skywalker. And it does almost seem now like we would have been better served having Finn 
bite it and maybe Rose bite it too at the end of, you know, Last Jedi. Let's let's really raise the stakes. Let's really show Disney who's boss here and, and turn this thing upside down because Rose doesn't get anything to do. Finn barely has a relationship with her in the next movie. Finn's always kind of been enamored with Rey and clearly that's those feelings are reciprocated from a friendship standpoint, uh, but seemingly not more than that. It, it, it is unfortunate that Finn becomes basically a side character through much of these movies. I think, Gabe, you said tw- after the first 20 minutes of Force Awakens, I think that's pretty astute and spot on. Um, you know, Poe has his arc in this movie, but I find Poe to be really annoying in this film. He's got that great opening scene with Hux where he, you know, he, where he's tooling with him, as we talked about at the top. But then he's, yeah, he's the fly boy. And it's like, we've all seen this character before. And we, we get that like, all right, I'm going to blow stuff up. I'm going to fly. F- the way we're going to solve it is I'm going to fly faster. I'm going to shoot harder. We're, you know, we're going to fire more. Like, and that's not always, we kind of know at this point, you guys, that that's not going to work. So it becomes kind of annoying. And it also, like, like, I love that Leia's the one who gets to stun him. And I love that Laura Dern, you know, gets, gets her moment in the sun. But like, I hate watching this movie where like, oh, the female character's in charge. She obviously doesn't know what she's doing. We're just flying and here we go. And she doesn't know what she's doing. She's not being aggressive enough. We need to do more. And so here's hot-headed Poe, you know, going to try all number of crazy ideas. And it just, it seems very prototypical of, of sort of sexist character divisions there. Um, I, like I said, I love when Leia gets to stun him. I love the Holdo maneuver. I just find Poe and Finn kind of meh through most of this movie and certainly into most of the next movie. But to Josh's point, there are four main new characters, and I guess that's okay because like, I really like Ray and I really like Ren. So I'm like super invested in their scenes. And then the other parts of the movie, I just kind of like tolerate until we get to the next Ray or Ren scene, or in the case of Last Jedi, the next Luke Skywalker scene. Dan, I don't think you're wrong in terms of pointing out what's frustrating about this sort of like male-centric decision-making and how that sort of like, oh, you know, the, the, the woman's not being aggressive enough, the woman's not being assertive enough, whatever, whatever that might be. Um, but where I actually don't mind its application in terms of this movie is that not until Poe starts to listen does anything or any idea that he come up comes up with actually work. All of the different ideas that he's coming up with when he's being a hothead or when he's being overly aggressive, they if they do work, it then ends up with all of their resistance bombers being blown up or the plan doesn't come to fruition, which is the whole thing with Canto Bite and with Finn and Rose. So, you know, I, I think it does kind of, present that commentary in that you have this hot-headed male figure who's you know you expect him to win out or you expect his plan to work um but i think you know maybe what this movie does rather intelligently is they let that play out and then show no like these two people who by the way outrank him knew what they were doing all along I do think um, a lot of Poe's personal frustration comes from just not being in the know. You know, he enjoyed clearly some sort of close relationship with Leia. So with her out of action, he still expects to be in the, in the briefing room. And, you know, by rank, he, he doesn't need to be there. 
it, it is an interesting, and it's a fair criticism against Poe too. I guess what I was trying to do in my in my hasty rewrite is give Poe sort of that same lesson, but in the opposite way. Like say, you know, the same thing happens with Leia, and then Poe's the one that's like, the, you know, what Holdo's not going to do anything. I'm I'm off with Rose. She's going to show me the thing. I'm going to bring it back. I'm going to be the hero. Finn, I'm going to need you to, you know, stall Holdo, you know, work against her, whatever it's going to take. And it's through that that, you know, Finn could then see more of the resistance. But as played, um, certainly the the lessons come through absolutely for Poe. Um, that Jordan, that's a phenomenal point that it's only after he starts being more accepting, um, after he starts listening, um, that his ideas start to work. You know, where did the crystal critters go? You know, it's not until that point that he starts, you know, or in that great Leia line too, you know, what are you, what are you looking at me for? Follow him. You know, at that point, he, at that point, he's truly earned it. And, and that is a nice moment. Nor would I give up any of Laura Dern in this movie. Dan, you made the point that if there's four characters here, um, Leia's the fourth to follow. And I think the flip side of her coin for when she's not in the movie is Laura Dern's Vice Admiral Holdo. I think Laura Dern is so much fun in this movie. I, I know we know nothing about her, but she has purple hair and she's a badass. And I think she's cool. I think maybe to put a, a cap on on the Poe discussion is like the arc is there. It makes sense, but he's probably got a, a little bit too much of of like Anakin petulance in him yeah. uh, to, to to make it enjoyable to watch. Like just because it, the arc is there and it makes sense doesn't make it fun to watch. Uh, I want to take this moment then to offer the same uh, question I did for Rogue One. We've, we've talked a lot about Last Jedi, kind of in a different way uh, than we did Rogue One. But um, same thing, if there's anything anybody wants to point out or discuss regarding Last Jedi, uh, speak now. Ray lifting rocks is cool. Just that picture. Yeah, that's just, that's a visual. I mean, that's something that we've talked a little bit about in terms of this film is just some of the scenes that are very pleasing to the eyes. They're aesthetically, they're they're, they're just aesthetically beautiful. Um, and and Josh, I think you're right on there that that is just a that's just a nice looking scene. For me, it's the the crate. Um, not just the battle sequence, but really Luke's whole sequence as part of that. You know, he shows up, and and I remember thinking, why does he like you're going you're gonna go you know save the galaxy, and you decide to get a haircut and shave your beard before doing so. The payoff of that it's the whole he has force projected himself, and you get that you get the Han dice at the end too. Uh, Luke in the final scene there, you get the the twin setting sons of you know presumably of Tatooine, um, you know as as. Luke officially passes into Force Ghost Land. See around, kid. His whole sequence there, uh, to me, just absolutely shines each and every time. One last thing that I wanted to go back to, um, you know, the throne room lightsaber battle. Um, I'm just kind of curious, where does that rank for for people? I mean, for me, it's it's. I think it's below Duel of the Fates. I also. I have a soft spot for the lightsaber battle at the end of Force Awakens. I think that's just a really cool-looking scene. Where else does that, that that throne room battle scene? Where 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 does that rank for you guys? I don't even group it with those other battles that you mentioned because they're not not like lightsaber versus lightsaber. If that makes sense, like it's not good versus evil. Now good and evil 
quote unquote evil have teamed up to beat other evil. Uh, you know, I guess, yeah, I don't view that. It's a phenomenal scene. I love it. I mean, the choreography is tremendous and we've talked about how visually striking it is and seeing Ray and Ren team up is like, Oh, we're, we're going to get, you know, the next movie is going to be the buddy movie that we wanted. And of course, because it's Last Jedi, you know, you, you don't get that. And I think that's the right call. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't view that in the same light as Luke versus Darth Vader at the end of uh, Return of the Jedi, Qui-Gon and, and Obi-Wan against Darth Maul and Phantom Menace, Anakin versus Obi-Wan and Revenge of the Sith. Yeah, I just don't view it through the same lens uh, as some of those other scenes, just for me. It's a really tough question. If we're talking, pure, we're talking purely lightsaber battles here, yeah? It, the throne room fight is really good and Dan hits it on the head and that part of it is just the investment in these characters and what that moment represents of the first time those uh, the two of them struggling on the same side but I also agree with you Jordan I mean the the, the Force Awakens fight at the end is also pretty striking I, I I think I have to say that Duel of the Fates might be still just the coolest lightsaber battle out there even though I probably have far less investment in any two of those characters in that fight than I do in both characters on the one but just in terms of how that struck um, maybe Duel of the Fates edges this one out, but yeah, the the Last Jedi Throne Room fight might be might be my my number two. For me, Duel of the Fates is like kind of the runaway number one. For me, it's more of a question of is this the number two? Is there something else in there? Yeah, see, I I, I, I kind of have to tip my cap to Dan. I, I sort of subconsciously grouped this with those other lightsaber battles, not really realizing that it's actually not lightsaber against lightsaber. The, the one that I hold above all else is actually Luke Vader in, in Empire Strikes Back, you know, may, maybe not in terms of choreography, but that's the first, those two going head to head and, and, you know, Vader bests him so decisively. And then you get the capper of, you know, uh, no, I am your father. Uh, you know, I, I think that, scene sort of maybe thematically mirrors this one uh in in the throne room in last jedi more because the you know it's the the rush of ray and ren working together i think is what puts the throne room scene over the top and the 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 rush of the reveal or you know rush maybe isn't the right word but the just draining of acknowledgement that it is that Darth Vader is Luke Skywalker's father is the climactic moment of, of that scene. So yeah, I, I think I would put those two closest together. I'll just round this out and stay because I don't know that I've chimed in specifically on that discussion yet. Um, that throne room fight is cooler and cooler every time I see it. And I don't care how many, you know, stuntman faints you can point out to me about, you know, when they look like they're going to hit somebody and they pull back for the last second visually and choreographically and even the way the throne room curtains burn up as the fight goes on it's just that's an awesome scene that quick slow-mo at the very beginning of it right before ray swings her lightsaber in the first oh, it's fantastic to your point jordan um and just a tremendous shot and we talked about the shot of luke and yoda on um on octo watching the tree burning and the, I might go out on a limb and just say this movie might be the best film, the prettiest Star Wars movie overall. There's a lot of striking photography in this film. Let's wrap up The Last Jedi. And uh, again, guys, so much fun to discuss and debate this stuff with you. Um, excellent to have so many scholars at the helm. And I'm just going to light speed ram my way 
right through this and, and split the points as I often do, because two of you guys grabbed me um, and kept grabbing me, grabbing me as this went on. Uh, maybe this is becoming a pattern with me, but I'm splitting the points. Jordan, you get one. Josh, you get one. Jordan, from the outset, and I'm not just giving this to you because you repeated my own words and thesis back to me from the first time that we saw The Last Jedi. Um, you went on to, I think, perfectly encapsulate the major themes of this movie, what Ryan Johnson is doing, and and tee off the rest of the conversation. So I, for your astute analysis of this, at the front end of this, you get a point. And Josh, uh, you get it for Broom Boy because I was touched and it's a phenomenal scene and I know it came from the, it came from the force straight from the force points for the J boys. I like it. Yeah. J points. So we go into the third question, all square, a point each. And now we get to have it out gentlemen. Uh, and we're going to start with Josh on question three, Josh rogue one or last Jedi, which movie's better? Who you got? So I mentioned at the top um, that this is a really painful decision for me not only because i love both of these movies so much but when we've talked about this in the past i have landed firmly on last jedi and for this podcast at this moment in time i have to flip-flop and say that i prefer rogue one i i think it probably boils down to that I enjoy Rogue One as a full full movie more than I enjoy Last Jedi as a collection of specific moments that I enjoy. Luke and Yoda's fireside chat, Broom Boy from Last Jedi, those are great moments. Sure, they tie together thematically, um, but as a whole, Rogue One from start to finish, the, the way it builds, traveling from place to place, picking up pieces of information along the way, emotional revelations along the way, and ending with the perfect Star Wars action sequence, uh, capped by Vader g going absolutely scorched Tatooine on those poor rebels, is uh, just such an unbelievable uh, ending to Rogue One. It, it, it just, you know, Last Jedi really leaves me hopeful at the end, Rogue One leaves me sort of drained at the end, like it, that 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 I, I that I was I was one of those slain rebels. This movie has just devastated me with all of its action and all the places that it's taken me. It's an impossible choice, but for right now, I say Rogue One. I hear you, and that's laudable, and that's an excellent choice. Jordan, you want to carry us through? Yeah, I will, um, and I am going to continue the uh, theme of the J-Boys uh, agreeing with one another. When we started talking about Rogue One, I had my, what, what Dan called an actual hot take, which which was a fair criticism because my, my hot takes tend to usually be uh, room temp. Would you call them lukewarm? <laughs> um, but you know, saying that the last 45 minutes of rogue one or the best 45 minutes of star wars you know it's a legitimate hot take and i don't know that this is quite this might be more of one of jordan's more typical hot takes but for me the correct answer to this question is rogue one and that is because when i rank my star wars movies rogue one comes in number two it's not the empire strikes back nothing is the is the empire strikes back but i think i enjoy it more than a new hope and I, and I had to think long and hard about that. And, you know, New Hope gets so much credit for being the first. 
But, you know, Josh, you talked about it just being a cohesive movie that, that tells great story and does so um, eloquently, does so succinctly, but still powerfully. Um, and for me, another thing that it comes down to is that I mentioned this earlier, but I'll go into a little bit more with it right now. I feel like the degree of difficulty in this movie is through the roof. Um, you have a large cast of characters that we need to invest in, right? I mean, you're talking Jin, Cassian, Baze and Chirrut, Bodhi, K2SO. You're, you know, right there, you're, like, I just listed like six characters, right? You need to invest in all of those different characters. And then you're not even taking into account Krennic and Galen Urso. You, so you have these other characters, right? And you have the Vader scenes. You have all of these different characters that you need to invest in. And they give us the time to do that. And I think the other thing that this movie does super, super well and goes into the degree of difficulty of it is that it is telling a story that we already know, right? Like we know of it and yet it feels unique. It, feel, it feels like it, 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 it does not feel overly dependent on the story that we already know. Even though that story that we are aware of and that story that we've seen hundreds of times begins 10 minutes later, right? Um, so I think the, the fact that it navigates that degree of difficulty so well um, and ends up telling just such a cohesive and enjoyable movie is for me why between these two movies, the better one is Rogue One. And it's close, but I don't know that it's terribly close. Well said, Jay. Um, for myself, I'm going to buck the budding tradition, and I'm, I'm going to have to go with The Last Jedi. Um, as much as I adore various and many pieces of Rogue One, to your point, Jordan, I think uh, the degree of difficulty, while high for Rogue One, may be even slightly higher with The Last Jedi. You've got to follow up the hit that sort of was force awakens and you're if you're ryan johnson you're trying to do something different with star wars at the same time and, and as we can see the backlash proves that uh, you don't always succeed but even hatred is evidence of passion um and i think the last jedi was a it was a spark uh that lit the fire that burned the first order to the ground uh and perhaps you know maybe kept the star wars flame alive for a while before it sputtered somewhat with uh, with the next installment but we're not sp speaking of that one now um no i think last jedi is audacious i think it's bold i think it takes a lot of risks and i think that's rare for for star wars and and all due respect to the tremendous work that rogue one does in rebuilding a new hope for us its imagination is great but it has a high floor um and it, while it manages to get a pretty hefty ceiling uh, I think Last Jedi builds a lot more from scratch, and I think nothing beats um, the last adventure of Luke Skywalker in Star Wars movies. So for me, the vote goes to, to Last Jedi. Uh, Dan, do you want to take us home? Where's, uh, what do you got at the end here? Great arguments, Gabe, but I am siding with my brothers. Rogue One is the pick. Great characters, great action, great score from Michael Giacchino don't necessarily know what you're going to get in a non-John Williams Star Wars score, but you get a great score, tremendous action, and the Darth Vader scene at the end. It brings it all together. I thought it was ironic that Josh said that Last Jedi left him feeling more hope and more drained after Rogue One, when really the theme of Rogue One is, in fact, that exact word of hope. And that's what it leaves you with. And you know exactly what's going to come next. It flows seamlessly into A New Hope. And 
Yes, Rogue One has its flaws, which I outlined earlier, but I think those are little, little detail things. And, you know, unfortunately, I think Last Jedi succumbs to what happened before and what took place after, whereas Rogue One is a truly standalone movie. It operates in this universe. And to me, the biggest thing is it looks perfect. It looks exactly the way it's supposed to look. And for that reason and many others, my pick between the two has to be Rogue One. Uh, gents, I, I applaud your reasoning and I applaud your, your voting in tandem. Um, clearly, you heard it here first, folks, on Dorkfest, the podcast, the superior film between the Rogue One, uh, between Rogue One and The Last Jedi is Rogue One. And uh, in keeping uh, with the nomenclature thereof, I'm going to give each of you one point. So as you may realize, I believe we're all square at two. And since, of course, there are no ties in Dorkfest, I'm going to institute a tiebreaker question right here and right now. And it may be a gimme. Uh, I'm honestly not sure, but it's a piece of trivia I came across and, and I wanted to share here with the group. So we're going to have to do this. Uh, you there at home are going to have to trust us here on sort of the, on the quick draw here, who gets to buzz in first, as it were. We have a chat box here in our, in our recorded Zoom room. And you know what? We could even speak it out loud. This is a, an audio medium. I don't know why we can't just say it. Who needs to buzz in? So guys, everybody's square two points each. Clearly Rogue One is the superior film, but we have to know who wins this year dork fest. So the question for you gentlemen, who is the only actor to appear in every Star Wars film? Anthony Daniels. Well, it looks like Dan wins the Rogue One Last Jedi podcast. Dan, do you want to give us some follow-up here on how you deduced that? Uh, the only reason I remember that is because C-3PO and R2-D2 are absurdly shoehorned in to Rogue One in the little, the Yavin 4, uh, like, hangar bay area. It's, it's their story. Like, the original trilogy, or maybe even the whole trilogy, is supposed to be, like, their story. They're the ones that go throughout the entire thing. But, yeah, then they're kind of bizarrely shoehorned in and um i do i did recall in seeing that scene and rewatching this movie the other day that kenny baker who was the actor inside r2d2 he passed away a number of years ago so i don't believe that he uh, was actually in r2 at least for rise of skywalker and maybe other films prior to that uh, so hence anthony daniels you are correct on multiple counts the only thing and i'm curious who gets this bit here what about solo a Star Wars story. Oh, it doesn't Anthony Daniels appear as himself? He actually does. Yeah, he's not. Yeah, he's not. He's, he's, he's not, not three Star Wars universe as the most normally manned in the galaxy. No, <laughs> he's not in Star Wars as the most normally named man in the galaxy. Anthony Daniels. He's there just as like some buddy of Chewbacca's in the right. scene or something like that. But yeah, Anthony Daniels is with that um, and very astutely remembered with the passing of Kenny Baker, the uh, heretofore R two D two actor. Yeah, Anthony Daniels is the only actor to have appeared in every single Skywalker and non-Skywalker Star Wars film. Dan, with that, edges out the rest to take the crown for the Rogue One versus Last Jedi podcast uh, here on Dorkfest, the podcast. Well done, Dan. Uh, a round of applause for both your point getting and your trivia knowledge. Uh, just as was established in at the end of Rogue One, so too established here on Dorkfest, the podcast. I tell you what, if the Rebels can get the plans 
to the Death Star and I can win a Dorkfest, the podcast, then there's hope for all of us. Can you ask the Emperor if I can still be the director? Hey, we stand here amidst Dan's achievement, not ours. Uh, and thank you all uh, for listening to Dan work his way to victory. And thank you for keeping uh, up with us while we uh, perhaps at length, perhaps at too much length, expounded on our, our love for both these excellent films. Let it not go unsaid that we adore both these movies and they're probably both in our top five Star Wars. So um, for anybody afraid out there that we're not properly valuing either of these films, trust me, we are. Thanks for tuning in, lending us your ears and joining us. Uh, we hope you enjoyed and we hope you tune in for another episode of Dorkfest the Podcast. And until then... Saw Guerrero used to say one fighter with a sharp stick and nothing left to lose can take the day. They have no idea we're coming. They have no reason to expect us. If we can make it to the ground, we'll take the next chance. And the next. On and on until we win, or the chances are spent. May the Force be with us.